How many of you guys watched the debates last week? A couple of you. Pray for America. Pray for America. Politicians will be politicians, I guess. Uh, we should expect that. They're always going to do or say things that are a bit, maybe not classy. <laughs> um, but there is a politician that you also should know about. His uh, name is Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson is known for a lot of things. You might be a fan of his if you got into the, the musical Hamilton. Uh, but there's another thing about him that you may not know unless you've been around church for any length of time. And it's that Thomas Jefferson made his own Bible. In fact, that Bible is presently on display. That Bible is edited. There are pieces chopped out and uh, parts that are redacted by, Tom, uh, by uh, Thomas Jefferson because he didn't believe it. He didn't think it was possible for miracles to happen. He didn't think it was possible that Jesus was everything that these guys said they were. And so he made his own Bible. In fact, you can actually go online and read his Bible. He has three different languages there. Uh, I forget which ones are there. I guess you could look at the, the image there, but English is one of the translations. So you could see how he cut and pasted different things and anything miraculous, anything that alluded to something otherworldly, he took out. Things like the resurrection, things like Jesus feeding the 5,000. Uh, Edison removed from the, the, the text itself. Bible. Recently, political organization, uh, decided that one of the things that they wanted to do to make a statement uh, about their feelings about the Bible is by using it as uh, a fire starter. In addition to burning American flags, this unnamed organization thought, you know what, let's tell people where we really stand. And we're going to do that by using at least one Bible, maybe two, hard to know for sure, but at least one Bible to, to start our fire and make our statement. Why? Well, it seems obvious that the Bible has uh, a lot of sway, at least it used to in our nation, used to in, a, in our common culture. But now, in order to say that we are against the patriarchy, we are against the institution, let's now use a Bible to start our fires and let's throw an American flag on there as well. Let's throw a flag on there that represents the, the cops and, and you know, because all cops are bad, ACAB and all that stuff. So we're going to burn all of that to remove the vestiges of what used to be our shared culture. Now, I'm not making a political statement. Uh, really, what I want you to see is that the Bible still possesses a, a kind of uh, polarization among people. There are times when the Bible can spark a sense of like, hey, we're kin. You like the Bible. I like the Bible. You think it's God's word. I think it's God's word. And there's other times when the Bible begins to create a kind of division, a hatred, a sense of animosity between people because of what the Bible says. Christians for the longest time have said the Bible is more than something written by guys and girls. The Bible, uh, no girls are actually who wrote that, but it's more, than, it's more than written by men. It's God's inspired word. And yet for others and for a lot of people, what they say is, well, you're deluded, Christian. It's a product of man. It was written by men. You guys even agree to that. Uh, let's just be honest here that there are mistakes in there. There are issues. There are contradictions. It's just a bunch of words put together. And I'm sorry, Christian, that, that's, you know, you got to get over this. You're too old for this. It's 21st century. You know, we're 2020. You should realize that science has the answers that the Bible will never be able to address. 
So don't put your faith in a religion. Don't put your faith in an old dead guy that no one knows about anymore. Put your faith in science. In fact, that belief is called scientism. Uh, we're not going to talk about that tonight, but that's the, the drift. That's the way that we're going. Bible, still a polarizing book. So it really does raise the question for us then, what is the Bible? Why do Christians believe that it is the word of God? It's not just written by men. It's God's verbal instructions to us as a creature, as, a, as people. Why do we believe that? Can we defend that? Can we honestly, as Christians, say there's a reason why you should trust the Bible? Well, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're actually going to break up the sermon into two because this is such an important lesson, such an important piece of information for your apologetic tool belt, whether you're a Christian or not. I guess if you're not a Christian, this would be helpful for you to know why we put so much stock into this book. If you are a Christian, you need to have a ready answer for when people ask you, why do you believe that the word of God is the word of God? Why do you believe the Bible is given by God? And if you don't have an answer for that, you're going to be found flat-footed like I was, and you're going to be found embarrassed and a bit ashamed because I don't know why I believe the Bible is the Bible. Tonight, we're going to talk about that. Last week, we talked about uh, proving God's existence. You guys remember that? What are the three C's? Let's start with the first one. Proof for God's existence. Excellent. Okay, I'm not going to spend more time on that, but creation. Next one. Excellent. Good job. All right, last one, nice and loud. Great. Okay, now I, should, I just want to add one little asterisk here, okay? For some of you guys who are exceedingly smart and you wanted a lot more than what I could give, know that there is so much more in this field. And if you're into apologetics and you want some book recommendations, I have a ton, uh, a ton of good things that might get you started and kind of get your foot in the water because there's a lot of good stuff out there. We only touch and scratch the surface. Uh, but creation is a really good place to start. If, if, you, if you want more about proving God's existence, the fine-tuning of the universe continues to be a spur in the saddle of Darwinian evolutionists. It's too happenstance. It's too magical to be uh, something that just spontaneously happened through the processes of random beneficial mutation. I'll leave that to you to discover. But don't forget this, okay? I want to help you guys remember this when you're having conversations. Proof for God, creation, uh, conscience, and Christ. Now, I, I grant you that for this next one here, when we talk about the reliability of Scripture, I'm, I'm, I'm being a little creative. I'm, I'm hoping that this will help you remember it. So we have proof for God's existence with three C's. Now we're going to talk about Scripture with four P's. Okay, four P's. And I'm going to give them to you now because I want you to recall these as much as you can. These are not my points, but I think you'll see that my points are derived from these mental concepts. Okay, proof for the reliability of Scripture. I'm going to give you four categories that you're going to think through. Here's the first one. The proof for reliability of Scripture, we're going to look at the past. We're going to say, can the past teach us anything or give us, thing, uh, give us anything that would help us to say, yeah, uh, we can trust the Bible because it talks about the past accurately. We're also going to look at the reliability of Scripture in terms of its power. There is something to be said about the unique ability for Scripture to still have an impact on people's lives today. We'll talk more about that soon. Of course, one of the first things most people think of when they, when they think about the reliability of Scripture is the imprimatur of God, the ability for it to tell the future from the present, to say in the future, here's what's going to happen. Here's how you're going to know that this is my word. I'm going to show it to you uh, by telling you in advance how it's going to unfold. And lastly, uh, one of the reasons we can trust Scripture, it's reliable because of its preservation. 
We talked a little bit about this last week, but we're going to talk about this more next week, the preservation of Scripture. When it was first written, it didn't, uh, it didn't last as an original copy. But we'll talk more about that next week. So you have four Ps, okay? Past, you have power, you have prophecy, and you have preservation. Why do we trust the Word of God? We trust the Word of God because it's clear that God is making himself evident through these four Ps. Now, again, I'm going to add another asterisk. There's more I could say here. In fact, I kind of rattled through all the books I had and rattled through my mind and said, what would be the most helpful things to give to you as high school students who are dealing with this? This is where I'm going to start. But again, there's more to say. Tonight during your small groups, I'm sure you'll have a lot of opportunity to bring up some more thoughts or ideas about this. But this is going to be the framework for the next, this uh, tonight and the next week as we talk about this. Everything we believe about Christianity, everything we know to be true, comes from believing and trusting God's word. This is where we begin. Okay, I know for some of you who are, uh, if you're a critic about Christianity, you're going to call a foul on this next move, but I'm going to do it because we're Christians anyway. Second Peter chapter 1. Let's start by developing a, a, a systematic theology of sorts. We're going to ask Scripture, uh, what does Scripture say about itself? How does the Word of God talk about itself, uh, and how are we supposed to respond? Well, 2 Peter chapter 1 is one of the best places to go. It's probably one of the most helpful places you could go as a Christian in terms of saying, what is the Bible, what does it say about itself? Again, we're breaking this up into two weeks. We're only going to cover the first few verses tonight, but let's look at them together. 2 Peter chapter 1, we're going to look at verse 16 together. Peter writes to the church, he says, for, for We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the first thing that should be obvious there is that he wants to make it abundantly clear that their revelation, their understanding of Christianity is not something from cleverly devised myths. In other words, no one's in a back room uh, with drugs trying to figure out, okay, how do we make this creative and exciting and develop a religion that's going to really scratch the people's itch? He's saying, no, this is something that does not come from Christianity, does not come from cleverly devised myths. This is not someone's imagination or invention, the first point then it, for us is the Bible isn't based on myths and legends. Title of your sermon, Can We Trust the Bible? Yes, because point number one, the Bible isn't based on myths and legends. Can we trust the Bible? Yes, because the Bible isn't based on myths and legends. All of the points tonight are not going to be imperatives. You're used to seeing second person imperatives. These are indicatives. The Bible is mostly made up of about 60% of historical narrative. Think of those two words together. History, narrative. Uh, a story about history, how it all comes together. The Bible is about 60% of that. So if you randomly open a page, chances are you're going to find yourself in Chronicles or you might find yourself in the Gospels, historical narrative. The whole point of historical narrative is to give you a sense of the past and to prove that it is, it is not based upon something that someone is just inventing. Again, if you think about the four Ps, past, what's the second one? Do you guys remember? Power. Power. Good. Third one? Fourth one? Preservation. Good. We're on the first P right now. Past. Bible isn't based on myths and legends. One of the things I want to address, and this isn't exactly related to it being history, although you'll see the connection soon enough. Whenever you talk to someone about the Bible and you say, well, the Bible is history. The Bible speaks to historical events and accounts. They're going to be quick to throw this at you. You ready? 
How am I supposed to believe that the Bible is in fact the word of God, is history, if there are talking fish, or rather talking donkeys? There are uh, people that get eaten by giant fish and live to tell the tale. There are floating axe heads. There is a special creation of man and woman when today we know, right? Darwinian evolution has proven itself time and time again. I don't know why we're even debating this anymore. Uh, you have a Jesus who brings people back from the dead, who, by the way, brought himself back from the dead too. How are you to account for all of these areas of the miraculous? Well, it's clear we don't see the miraculous every day, so how can you trust this? Let me talk about this quickly here. Let's talk about miracles. Uh, the first thing we can say is that miracles... Uh, are part of an ecosystem of thought that fits within the biblical framework. One of the reasons people throw out miracles as being an issue is because of this guy here. You may not know him, but his name is David Hume. David Hume was a European philosopher, 17th or 18th century, I forget. I think it's the 17th century. Uh, he was popular because one of the things that he espoused was this idea that miracles are improbable and therefore really impossible. He said it much smarter than I did, but uh, essentially his argument is that if miracles were readily observed, then we could get on board with what the Christian Bible teaches. He says, but all religions talk about miracles. You know, not a single religion in the world doesn't have a sense of miracles that they're going to point to and say, well, this is why we believe such and such. He says, and if you think about it, there's so many of them. How could you really trust any of them? He also says, in your day-to-day -day experience, you've never experienced a miracle. In fact, let me just do, just do a quick poll here. If you have, if you think you've experienced or witnessed a miracle, let me see your hand. Anyone want to go on the record? Okay, I see one. Anyone else? Two? Okay. Someone brings up a good point. Depends on how you define miracle. Well, David Hume would say a miracle is something that violates or uh, breaks or suspends natural law. So, for instance, if, uh, if one of you guys suddenly started levitating in the air, violating the law of gravity, uh, that would be impressive. You would be, we, would, we might say, hey, that's a miracle. He's floating. He's flying. That's a miracle. Oh, again, David Hume argues that it's impossible. It's impossible because no one has ever seen it. He says miracles don't happen because we've never seen miracles. Now, some of you who are smart might already see an issue with what I just said. Miracles don't happen because we don't see miracles. Uh, there's a certain shape of argument that that's called. <laughs> that's called circular reasoning. In other words, you're assuming the end before you have a conclusion. You're assuming the end at, your, at the beginning of your argument, argument. It's saying, miracles don't happen because I don't see miracles. Therefore, miracles can't happen. You see how that's problematic. Now, he, again, he says it much smarter than I do. But he's one of the guys who makes it popular. Now, let, let, me, get, let me come back to something that I, I, want you to be under, I want you to be clear about. Christians don't necessarily subscribe to the idea of natural law. The idea that God sets the world in motion, he spins the globe in a certain way, he tilts it on its axis in a certain way, 23 and a half degrees, he sets it 400, you know, uh, 400,000 miles away from the moon and then further from the sun. That's a deistic God. Uh, God doesn't just start the ball spinning and then run away and say, okay, good luck. That's not God. Hebrews chapter 1 says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. In other words, God is intimately involved in creation. Did anyone see the sunset this morning? Or the sun? The, uh, 
You knew what I meant. You knew what I said and I meant. Did you see the sunset this evening or witness the sunrise this morning? Scripture would lead us to believe that God is involved in that. It's not just that it follows a predictive pattern because God designed the world to work in that way, but that he's also intimately involved in that. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. So one of the problems with, with Hume's argument is that he is observing something that is descriptive and not prescriptive. If there is a God who oversees the entire world and the universe, then surely if he were to intervene in that world, we would expect that. We would expect there to be uh, certain things that are outside the norm simply because God is involved. It's not foolish to think that God could not be part of the world that we inhabit, that he wouldn't do things like causing the sun to stand still for Joshua and his army. Only in a closed system that in in a closed system that is circular in its reasoning, does it ever make sense to say miracles are impossible, period, the end, therefore scripture is, uh, is irrelevant. In fact, in my research, as I was doing this for you guys, I came across a book, a two-volume book by Craig Keener. It's like a $100 book, so if you want it, this is, this is for you. It's a two-volume book, about a 1,000 pages, and the whole purpose is documenting reliable testimony to miracles. Past and present. Now, his purpose, of course, was to showcase the fact that miracles are not as impossible as David Hume and others suggest. Miracles don't immediately challenge the historicity of Scripture. In fact, I would ask, and we're going to look at this soon enough if I can just stop talking and move forward here, we're going to ask uh, why we should believe the testimony of Scripture. But let's just say miracles in and of themselves don't necessarily deny the historicity of Scripture. Clear on that? As mud. Great. We're still talking about the past. Archaeology shows historical credibility. One of the best things about Scripture is that as it talks about times and places and people, you have times and places of people that others recognize as being real places, real people, real times. And you can test this by digging under the ground and saying, hey, what's underneath all of this sand here? Can we find evidence of the people and places that we're talking about? Well, uh, of course, some of the most amazing, in fact, I, I saw this, I think it was Time Magazine that said the most important archaeological discovery of our time is, would anyone want to take a guess? Excellent. The Dead Sea Scrolls in the Qumran Caves, 1940s. We find these, uh, these, these jars with, uh, with, with these scrolls in them that are hundreds of years old. Thousands, actually, by that point. Thousands. On them are these scrolls that contain large swaths of Old Testament scripture and a few debated small texts that look like they could be New Testament, too. We don't know. But at the very least, what we do know is that the things that we found there, in fact, almost an entire copy of the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is important because until that point in the 1940s, when we found this scroll, the oldest copy of Isaiah was somewhere in the, in the region of 800 to 1000 AD. Of course, it's hard then to say, well, Isaiah is predictive prophecy. Isaiah 53, we have the, there's the shepherd who would be struck and, and he, would be, uh, he would be sacrificed. He'd be raised and crucified. Well, it's easy for us to say that because, you know, we're in 2020. A skeptic could say, well, clearly Isaiah was edited in order to make it seem like he was predicting the future, in order to give credibility to a certain Messiah. 
Well, enter the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls, which were discovered again in the 1940s, late 1940s, uh, have a copy of Isaiah that dates back to a few hundred years before Christ. Think about that. So you have two things happening. Number one, you have the copy of Isaiah that is showing itself to be incredibly accurate, and you have it dating itself before the time of Christ, which gives greater credibility to the, to the idea that, well, hey, maybe Isaiah did write this, and maybe this is predictive prophecy, and maybe the Bible is true after all. That's a lot of maybes. Doesn't guarantee this, right? Okay, I'm building a case for you to show you there's a lot of clues that lead us to the position of the Bible's reliable. This is not the only thing. Let's, let's take a look at another one. Hezekiah's tunnel. Hezekiah's tunnel uh, is dated to about 700 BC. This is written about in 2 Chronicles 32 and 2 Kings chapter 20. Now, it's not, a long, it's not a long text, but if you were to look at those two, it talks about Isaiah digging a tunnel in anticipation of an attack. And so he makes his tunnel, and inside this tunnel, you see an inscription by, uh, by King Hezekiah. Now, I should let you know that there are people who debate this. There are people who would say, well, Hezekiah's tunnel isn't from the time that they say that it is. It's actually younger. It's not as old. It's probably not Hezekiah. And I say, okay, it's really hard to deny these kinds of things when you're looking at such clear testimony, even inside the tunnel. The testimony of the tunnel with the inscription says Hezekiah. You can ignore that. You can suppress that. But it seems pretty likely that we're on sure footing here. Most scholars, for your information, would agree that this is the tunnel that's referred to in Scripture. Again, another point in terms of Scripture having historical reliability. One more thing. We're talking about history here and archaeological finds. The New York Times ran an article about a ring that they found. Uh, in fact, this ring was found in 1969. But it wasn't until recently that we were able to clean the ring and take images of the ring and discover with clarity what's on the face of it. Turns out, it looks like this ring, which is dated to the time of Christ, has the name Pilate on it. Interesting. What a coincidence. The ring looks like this, and I couldn't find a really high-quality, high-definition image, but you get the, the, the ring on the left and, and the, uh, the image on the right, uh, if you can... Read it. I know it's really hard to see, but it does say Pilate on the front of it. And again, the New York Times is saying this ring is someone that probably represented Pontius Pilate operating on his behalf. If it was Pilate's ring, it'd be made of better, better metal, they're, they're saying. But it's likely that this ring belonged to someone in operation for Pilate, someone who represented his authority. Interesting. Interesting. The Bible isn't based on myths and legends, and we know that because the archaeology shows historical credibility. The past reveals to us that we're standing on sure footing. And I only gave you three examples, guys. I only gave you three examples, but there are many more. There's a lot of little examples that lead us to the larger conclusion that, man, it seems like Scripture tells the truth. <laughs> Speaking of, the Bible has a commitment to the truth that strengthens its witness. Here's what I mean by that. And I, I, I guess I don't have any text here for you. Jesus says in John 14, 6, you guys know this one, I'm the way and the truth and the life. Jesus says, I am the truth. Scripture talks about itself as a truth teller, objective truth teller. And one of the reasons you can believe it is because throughout Scripture, everybody is an anti-hero except for one. Everybody's an anti-hero. Think about David. 
We think about David, we think about the king who had the, the heart after God, right? Everyone wants to be David. Everyone wants to be David until David commits adultery and murder. Those few things, we kind of, oh, we shouldn't do that. But David's story from beginning to terrible end is inscripturated for us. And the Bible points to David as a, pre, uh, a preview of the, the ultimate David, the, the Christ, Jesus. We look at David and we see, man, what a flawed figure, what a hero, but an anti-hero. Someone who looks really good, but is deeply flawed. That's true about a lot of characters in scripture. Deeply, super admirable, but deeply flawed. David's one of those guys. Think about Jonah, a prophet that God sent to preach to the Ninevites, who instead of going to the Ninevites and being obedient, runs away and has to get swallowed by that great fish. And yet he's a prophet. <laughs> He's supposed to be a man of God, a hero in some sense as a prophet, but deeply flawed, an anti-hero. Think about the apostles, the apostles themselves. Peter puts his foot in his mouth more than ever. Thomas uh, doubts the Lord is risen. And yet the Bible includes these people. If the Bible was trying to be manipulative or to make you believe something that was unlikely, if it was a myth and a legend, these people would not be flawed. They would be perfect. And they would be, uh, in many ways, the kind of aspirational people that you would long to be like. And there are some evidences of them. You got Paul. You do want to be like Peter in some sense. But the Bible includes all of their ugly failures. In order to make a point, they're not good enough. Only God is good enough. I'm sending Jesus. He's going to fulfill all the things that I predicted. In fact, one of the stories, the gory stories of Scripture that makes me feel icky inside uh, is included in Scripture as evidence of David's failure. 2 Samuel 13. You know, we don't have time for that, but let me just say this. Scripture faces the ugliness of humanity full frontal, and that's testimony to its commitment to truth. It doesn't edit out the ugliness of its kings. In fact, it uses the ugliness of its, of its heroes in order to point us to the ultimate king, and the ultimate hero. I've been going for 26 minutes already. You guys doing okay? Not everybody said that. I'll speed up. Okay. This is not blind faith. It's my point. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Let's read this and we'll go through the... Uh, I think through verse 17 here. For, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But, Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter points to the fact that, hey, I'm not just making stuff up. I saw this. I was there for this. Believe me, I was there. I have no reason to lie. He goes on. He says, for when he received honor, Jesus, when Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, he's talking about the Father saying to him, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. In other words, I saw this, I testify to you, this is what happened. We're not making up stories. I was an eyewitness. Put me on the stand, ask me questions. I'll tell you the truth. You need to know that I believe this with my heart of hearts. I'm willing to die for this. And in fact, well, from what we know, Peter did die for this. But that's another point. Can we trust the Bible? Yes. 
because the Bible values eyewitness evidence. This really does fit nicely with our conversation about the past. In fact, this is if you're taking mental notes here, and we talk about the past, we talk about power, we talk about prophecy and preservation, these first two points fit under that past idea. We're doing some research on the web, and I found that people are still very much in tune with saying, hey, uh, if you're going to have spiritual beliefs, that's phenomenal. Believe and think whatever you want. Because when it really comes down to it, they say here, spirituality is an entirely personal thing. Uh, not something that can be dissected, not something you can put in a lab. Uh, it's personal and therefore subjective. So believe whatever you want insofar as it does not hurt anyone else. In fact, I found studies that looked, about, uh, looked at the, the way that people approach spiritual beliefs and suggest uh, very heavily that spiritual beliefs are in a category unto themselves. They can't be tested. They can't be measured. They can't be verified. Therefore, none of this can possibly be true. Believe what makes you feel good. And yet, Scripture doesn't say that. Scripture doesn't say, hey, just follow your heart. And in fact, it says the opposite. Scripture doesn't say, hey, close your eyes and be hopeful. Wish for the things that are impossible. Just close your eyes and believe it. Scripture never says that. I love this. And in fact, all four of the New Testament Gospels are written in the lifetimes of eyewitnesses, and their testimony can be traced back to firsthand encounters with Jesus himself. In other words, Scripture con uh, contradicts and contrasts against today's spiritual beliefs and to the point where they would say, hey, don't take, don't just take my word for it. You can ask, uh, you can ask John, you can ask James, talk to the people that have seen this, have held him. In fact, John says, I've touched him with my hands. I was there for this. I love this about scripture because in no other religious system do you have them saying, hey, talk to the eyewitnesses. Talk to the eyewitnesses. Scripture values this. And that's something you should be, uh, you should be very encouraged by. J. Warner Wallace writes a very helpful book, and maybe some of you guys have this already. It's called Cold Case Christianity. He was a former LAP, uh, LAPD detective. He was a homicide detective, so he'd go around and uh, solve murder mysteries. All right, sounds like a cool job. Well, some of the things that he learned along the way, by the way, he got saved eventually, which his story is fascinating. You should look him up. He still does his own thing. One of the things that he does is that he would test eyewitnesses, and, and all eyewitnesses eventually had to kind of answer four questions. He would say, you know, were they even there? Some people would pretend to be there. They weren't there. So you'd have to ask, were these people actually there? Then, have they been honest and accurate? Honest and accurate. Could we, can we trust their testimony? Also, can they be verified? Is there any way that we can fact check these eyewitnesses? Is there corroborating evidence? Is there audio recording? Is there video recording? Is there some way to ensure that what they said was, in fact, what they said? And finally, do they have an ulterior motive? Now, I really like cold case Christianity because it goes through all of these areas and it basically takes these four questions and unpacks the entire gospel story and says, well, can we trust the eyewitnesses? Uh, were, were Peter and James and John actually there? We have good reason to believe that. Have they been honest and accurate? We believe that for a lot of reasons. In fact, some of those reasons you're going to see tonight in your small group questions. Can they be verified? Were there any other people there that would testify to their truthfulness? We're going to see that in just a few moments. Do they have an ulterior motive? Now, I'm not going to talk about this tonight, but just suffice it to say that none of the guys who were the, uh, the starting uh, players for Christianity died with any of the things that would make someone say, huh, it sounds like they were trying to get their for the money, for the power, or for the sex. Because, in, and by no means, did any of these men die with those things. Jesus died ignominious, uh, ign ignominiously. He died naked and shamed on a cross. And all the guys, his apostles, as far as we know, none of them died with, a, with great wealth, with a harem of women, and with any power to speak of, at least not normal human power. 
These are the tests for eyewitnesses. As we think about the gospel eyewitnesses, and then I'm going to go through this really quickly. Please, buckle your seatbelts. In a day of alternative facts, in a day where deep fakes are, are the, the, the norm for you, you have to be increasingly, uh, increasingly aware of your surroundings. The gospels are not alternative facts, or not deep fakes, or not fake news. The gospels are historical narrative motivated by a theological concern. Motivated by theological concern. So they're not, they're not unbiased. You can't say that the Gospels are unbiased, but the Gospels do have theological concerns, but they are historical narrative. They are still true, even if they do intend to convince you that they are true. I want you to write these, these, these passages down. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Acts 1, 21 and 22. I'm going to put the first one on the screen. The second one's not going to be there. But the first one is important because I need you to see that. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. So Gospel eyewitnesses, Luke, the beloved physician. Listen to the way that he composes this to Theophilus. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were, there's that word again, eyewitnesses, and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all the things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. You would have to utterly throw this out and call Luke a liar in order to say something other than what he says here. He's essentially saying, Theophilus, whoever this is, trust me, I've taken an orderly account, I've asked the eyewitnesses, we've, we, we've seen people, we've talked to people, I want you to be certain and sure of what I'm saying here. Now, one of the things that we don't have time to talk about is Luke's attention to historical details, places, people, times, naming conventions, all of these things that Luke references in passing, it seems, give us greater confidence because there's no way Luke could know so much about a local town, a local city, a local culture without being there himself. It would be like one of you guys writing about the Eliso Viejo Town Center and describing it in vivid detail as you hang out with your friends and talk about this and you're eating pad thai or whatever else, you're describing it in vivid detail. And then a hundred years later, someone reads your journal entry and says, wow, Clearly, they were there that night. There's evidence by the way that they talk. There's evidence about their friends' names. There's evidence about the name of the restaurant that they went to. That's kind of how Luke crafts his narrative. He's like, he's journaling and uh, writing a diary entry of all that took place. And he's doing this as a research project. John. John says that he saw um, and, and has borne witness. His testimony is true. He talks to himself. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. I'm not lying. I saw this. Paul. Paul said about Jesus that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of them still alive. In other words, go talk to them. You don't think Jesus rose from the dead? Go talk to those 500 people. And then you have Peter, who says he's a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Gospel witnesses are fully in alignment about their commitment to the truth and their willingness to even suffer for this. They are eyewitnesses. Listen to us, talk to us. And by the way, if you were to think about Alexander the Great. To, as a contrast, the most recent information about him comes from guys who are 400 years removed from Alexander the Great. 400 years. And yet, most of us don't deny any of the things that are said about Alexander the Great. The Gospels have testimony within 100 years of Christ's life. In fact, within about, you know, let's call it 60 the Gospels are the most historically reliable books. In addition to that, they are uh, built upon eyewitness testimony. 
There's other people outside of the Gospels, though, that would also talk about Christ and talk about what he has done. Uh, one of them you might know is named Josephus. He mentions Christ. He calls him Christus. Talks about the disciples um, following him. And they, they, his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that they had appeared to them three days after his resurrection, or his crucifixion, rather, and that he was alive. Josephus says this. Another guy by the name of Thalus, uh, who was actually, it's hard to describe this one. Um, Thalus, his works, as, as good as they apparently were, were lost. Historical uh, testimony that was eventually lost. But Africanus, one of his uh, disciples, protégés, quoted Thalus, or actually summarized him. Um, and I don't have a picture of Thalus, so here's one of Evan. Uh, he says, <laughs> On the whole world, there pressed a most Fearful, uh, fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea, Judea and other districts were thrown down. He talks about what seems to be the period after Jesus uh, was crucified. That whole earthquakes and darkness, this, he's, he's talking about this. He's actually quoting Thalus, but again, Africanus, quoting Thalus, says this is what he said, this is what took place. Another guy, uh, a guy named Octavius Tacitus, uh, also writes about Christ. He talks about the Christians who suffered extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our proc uh, procurators, Pontius Pilate, not Christians, Jesus. And I could go on, guys. Uh, they're rare. There's not a ton of them. And some of them you really have to read carefully to say what's he talking about, but they're out there. There are people that testify to Christ's life. Now, granted, they're not saying we're followers of Christ. They're simply saying we know that he existed. We know that this is what happened. And it seems like his followers believe that he rose from the grave. Same stuff you already wrote down. Wallace's evidence. Oh, it's pay careful uh, pay careful attention and ask myself, did they pass the test? Did they pass the test? I'll let you be the judge. Lastly, can we trust the Bible? Well, let's take one more look at the, the passage here. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. I want you to pay close attention to the very first thing he says in that first sentence there. He says, and we have, he, he just recounted, right? I saw Jesus on the mountain transfigured. Uh, I was a witness there. We heard the voice of God born from heaven, the testimony. And he says, but, and rather, and, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. We trust the Bible more than our experience. He says, the prophetic word is more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He says, the word of God is something that you can trust to, to light your path. And you should. We know that the word of God is more accurate, more faithful, after that day on the mountain, we knew the word of God is trustworthy. He didn't point to his experience and say, well, after that day on the mountain, when I had that experience with Jesus on the mountain, it was amazing. I've never doubted him since. He says, no, I, I, I know that from that event, that was pointing me right back to scripture because that was fulfilling the arc of scripture's purpose to highlight and glorify the Jesus, the God man, Jesus Christ. So he says, I trust the Bible more and my experience less. I'm trusting what the word of God says. Why? Well, because scripture claims a kind of authority that is not, it's not small, guys. In fact, oh man, if we had just a little more time, let me just put it this way. Point number three, can we trust the Bible? Yes, because the Bible claims ultimate authority. And I need to unpack that a little more. I talked about the four Ps. We can trust the Bible. God made it clear that it's from him. He evidences this by the past, by its power, by its prophecy, and by its preservation. We're now in that second P. 
It's power. It's power to do things. The Bible's authority, the Bible's reliability is clear because of the way it impacts people even to this day. You guys, most of you probably know about the elephant analogy, right? Religions are all like blind men touching different parts of an elephant. Christians are touching the trunk and Buddhists are touching the tail and Muslims are touching the side. And so, of course, if all these people are touching various parts of the elephant, you're going to have a different conception of what the elephant is. However, the one point I want to make to you is that even from the narrator's position, you're clear and the narrator's clear, the author's clear, that's an elephant, right? In other words, it's claiming a kind of understanding of the situation that is outside of the four blind men. It's saying, this is the truth. This is really what's happening. Christianity claims not to be touching one part of the elephant. In fact, Christianity says, Scripture is the unadulterated truth of God, and it is impossible for it to be anything else, because Scripture claims to be God's Word and therefore have a kind of authority in your life and in mine that is ultimate, highest, the highest authority that we have. Scripture does not claim to be one part of the elephant looking and trying to figure things out. Scripture says, this is the word of God. Sanctify them by the truth, Jesus says. Your word is truth. Not experience, not other religions. He says, your word. Scripture's truth is truth. Scripture challenges us. Don't pay attention to that. I can't talk about that. Just stop looking at that. You can look at that. Scripture has 66 books, 40 authors, three languages, seven plus genres, written over 1,500 years. What's impressive about this is that it has one unifying message, one central thesis. God made you for his glory. You're a sinner. You must be redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. He's coming back. He's going to set things right, and all will bow at his throne. One sentence of the Bible. There you go. If you memorize that, you have the whole Bible memorized. Just kidding. This is impressive because it gives a sense of the power of God to orchestrate um, 40 different authors to put it together and craft a cohesive book that has the authority to still do several things. One, to change your life. The Bible has the authority to continue doing things to you that it promises if you continue leaning into it. He says, uh, Paul says about, uh, about it, that you will uh, have your inner self uh, renewed day by day. In, in uh, Romans 12, he says that you'll be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Scripture is self-authenticating. Scripture is self-attesting. In other words, uh, the, the best witness for Scripture is Scripture. If you want to know if God wrote it, read it. Let Scripture change you and change your mind. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I know that's very experiential. I know that's anecdotal. And some of you who are scientifically minded will call me on this. But this is a real part of our understanding of who God is. He reveals himself through his word. Very important that you understand that. Scripture has authority, ultimate authority, to know your inner thoughts and attitudes. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. In the second part of verse 12, it says, It discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. The Bible is the only book that reads you, as someone once said reveals our sin. It brings conviction. The Word of God is such a clear reflection and representation of God's thoughts. It is as, as if God himself is standing before you, issuing his judgments into your life. Lastly, the Word of God gives sound correction, wisdom, and direction. The Word of God says, if you follow me, it'll be like you're a tree planted by streams of water. You will be experientially 
better because you're following the design of the creator. You will have a life that represents a wholesome experience. And the reason why is because you're living in correspondence to reality. It's not, this is a good idea. It's that you're living in a way that corresponds to reality. That's called truth. Knowing what corresponds to reality. Scripture claims to speak the absolute and definitive truth about who you are, who God is, and the world around you that he made. There's another guy that I'd like to bring up to you. His name is Lee Strobel. He was an investigative journalist, atheist. He looks really menacing in that photo, doesn't he? Coming after you. Well, I'll spare you the excitement here, and I'll let you know that the guy eventually got saved. In fact, you might know him if you watched the God is Dead movie because they quoted, it about, they quoted his book, The Case for Christ. Um, and that's a really good book. If you haven't been into apologetics at all, this is a good place to start. Uh, but I wanted to quote a specific aspect of what he said. Again, he goes in as a, as a critic, as an atheist, and here's what he has to say. He says, Our faith is built on a firm, factual, historical foundation. I went into this as an atheist. I went in as a skeptic. I went in as someone who was motivated for this not to be true. What did I find? I found that I could trust the New Testament of the Bible when it tells me about life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I found evidence that convinced me as a skeptic that Christianity is true. Tonight we began the first half of our proof for the reliability of Scripture. There are four Ps. The first one is... Yes. Well done. Okay. I, I, I want to make another plea. If tonight you are an unbeliever, I know this is not going to convince you. Might put a rock in your shoe. But again, Christians, listen to this. What unbelievers need is not necessarily more evidence. They need more of the gospel truth. So tonight, I hope you spend some time, if you're an unbeliever, thinking through the implications of what we just talked about. But also, if you're a Christian, being encouraged by this and saying, yes, I need more people to hear the gospel. If the Bible is true, that changes everything. If the Bible is true, my entire life is being upended. It's being turned upside down and given new function and new purpose. Amazing. That's exactly what we want. I really want you guys to go to your small group. So even though the worship team has a closure, I'm going to just pray you guys out. Before you guys exit, please take your trash with you as usual. And I really do pray that you guys have some really awesome small groups tonight. Let's pray together. Mm -hmm.